0: to speak to you about this. How do we recover from the shame and guilt of our past mistakes? I'm really, really glad to speak to you, both because I really like you, but also because this is my story. Shame and guilt are what drove me to to God. It's what brought me to Jesus Christ. So it's exciting for me to be able to kind of share a part of that journey with you. But also, um, it's because I actually do this all day long. If I could give you the number one topic that I talk to women about every day, they'll start off talking about something else. They'll bring up their kids, their husbands, and then when they finally get comfortable, they'll finally open up about their past, about things that they've done, things they're doing now, and they feel such shame and such guilt, and they're hiding so much from everyone in their world, and they're they're so afraid of what I'll think about them. We all want to know, how do you recover from this? How do you get past thinking about it? Are you just always going to feel like the, the worm? Are you just going to keep digging under the ground until the earth covers you? And no one's ever going to know you. You're just going to keep passing people in the hall saying, I'm fine. Good. How are you? Fine. Unknown. Hidden. It doesn't have to be like that. But as I started talking with women, one of the things I've noticed is that when we talk about shame and guilt, we honestly don't even understand the words we're talking about. So the first thing we're going to do is start off by defining what is guilt and what is shame. And since guilt is easier, we're starting with that one. So here's what guilt is. Guilt is so simple. It is what you are when you've done something wrong. You've lied, then you're guilty of lying. That's it. Cut and dry. It doesn't matter if you think you have a good reason for that lie. It doesn't matter if everyone in the world would agree with you. It's still a lie, so you're guilty of lying. Does that make sense to you all? It's very objective. It's very cut and dry. There's, there's really no debate about it. Like, if someone, if a man is in a, in a, in a marriage and he has sex with another woman, it's adultery. It doesn't matter how bad his marriage is, how how long it's been, how, how it's just one time, no matter how you define it, it's still he's guilty of adultery. That's what guilt is. It is possible, though, to be blind to guilt. Like, for example, um, because this happened to one of my daughters, her name is Aisley, she was driving around temple, and she was headed to Waco to go to Panera to work, and she sees cop lights, you know, come on in her rearview mirror, and she gets pulled over, and she's like, he's like, do you know how fast you were going? And she's like, yeah, I'm doing 60. And they're like, yeah, well, it's 50 here. And she's like, no, 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 it's not, it's 60, it's always been 60 here. And he's like, no, ma'am, the posted speed limit is 50. So did she feel guilty? No, because in her mind, she's doing the right thing. Here's this cop coming around to her to say, no, this is the law. And all she had to do was backtrack the next day. And she was like, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take a picture of it. He's going to find out that I'm right. I'm fighting this ticket. And I was like, so how's that fight going? She's like, he was right. (laughs) Shocking. I know that she was wrong about it, but So all of a sudden, she finds out that he was right. She was guilty of speeding. Did she mean to? No. She meant to the other 80 times that she sped, but not that time, right? Yeah, she's like, I didn't mean to. I'm like, like the, she's like, yeah, I usually mean to, but this time, I didn't mean to. But she was actually guilty of it, even though she didn't know she had done it. That's guilt, and here's the thing. We are guilty before God, whether we feel like it or not. Your role, the reason humans were put here, is to be the glory of God. That literally means to make Him displayed. You were supposed to, in your work and in your play and in your speech and in your actions, in your emotions, every part of you is supposed to show me the truth of who God is. I should be able to follow you around. And as I do, just line up my life with yours because your life is lined up with God's. So how are we doing with that? Exactly. That's the standard. The holiness of God, the perfection of God is the standard. And we all fall short of the glory of God. Do you understand that phrase a little better now? We all fall short of the display of who God is. We are all guilty, and here's the problem with that. We are all going to be punished for it. And the punishment is not that you feel really bad. If you sin sexually, the punishment is not that you just have bad relationships and have a lot of regret in your life. That's not the punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death. Death. We say it so flippantly. We say it like it's no big deal. But death is not your end. Your end is to die here and be alive forever in torment in hell. And it is real torment, the worst suffering you could ever imagine. That is your future because of your guilt. As flippantly as you may say it, it's still the absolute truth of the reality of what happens to those who are guilty. Well, here's the problem we know we're guilty. It's why we hide, it's why we cover over, it's why we justify ourselves, it's why we defend ourselves, it's why we escape, it's why we use drugs, it's why we use alcohol, it's why we use each other. Everybody in the world is trying to escape the reality of their own guilt. But no matter what you do, you still feel the clutch in your stomach. And guess what? It only gets worse the more you're in church and the more you read God's Word. Because when you read God's Word or you go sit in church, all of a sudden people are telling you things that you didn't even know were sins. It's just like that cop telling Aisley, this this is 50 miles an hour. She didn't know she was guilty until he told her. And you come to church, you read the Bible, and the more you read, the greater your guilt becomes, which is you're starting to think, okay, it's been great. See ya, right? At least we can get rid of some of it. But here's the problem. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, it's going to stay with you. So what do we do about it? Well, the problem is if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, there's nothing you can do about it. This is your punishment. The punishment is real. The punishment is coming at you. You will bear the guilt for what you've done because you are guilty whether you feel like it or not, whether you feel like you're a pretty good person or not. The standard has been broken. You broke the speed limit. The standard has been broken. You are guilty before God. You will bear the punishment unless you belong to Jesus. That's it. There is only one way to have the remission of your guilt, and that's through Jesus Christ. But if you have no relationship with him, then you have no other out than to bear the punishment for your guilt forever. But here's the thing I need you to know. If that's you, that guilt you feel is actually a gift of God for you. It is meant to make you turn away from where you are and run to God. It's exactly what happened to me. It's meant as a gift for you. I finally saw myself guilty instead of the innocent victim I thought I was all of my life. God won't turn away from punishing sin. It's either you or it's Jesus. And it's not as easy as saying like, sure, Thank you, Jesus. I'll take, the, I'll take your blood for my sin, and then I'm going to go live however I want. And then when it gets really bad, you start thinking you're really a little bit further than you meant to be. Then you turn back to Jesus, say you're sorry, show back up to church again, and then you just live in your life. That is not how this works, and you're not His if that's you. Your knowledge of Him doesn't mean anything. Your raising, your family means absolutely nothing. The fact that you've passed your New Testament class and your Old Testament class and memorized, you know, a verse a week means nothing. Satan knows more about the Bible than you do and he's condemned to hell. It is not about your knowledge. It's about your relationship. And how do you know whether or not you're in relationship with Him? It's because you have decided not to go your own way anymore but to become a follower after Him. One whose life looked like you and then over time grows in conformity with Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower after. You will be representing here Him on this earth for His sake. If you want freedom from the guilt of your sins, that's what it takes. You have to want to be free of the sin to get the guilt gone for your sin. But if you do want Him then what you get is ridiculous. Because what He does for you is this most incredible exchange where the Son of God will, and this is the part that that is so key, if you miss this, then you're living with shame and guilt. What Jesus Christ did was make an actual, real, real, for real, true reality exchange with you and Him. He, Became your guilt, took it. Literally, the guilt you feel becomes His. And His position before God becomes yours. It's an actual exchange. It's so hard for us because we don't feel like it happened. But it happened. There is a real exchange. He who knew no sin will become sin for you. So that you can become what he is before God. He bears your guilt. Not in a pretending way. Not like on paper. He really will become your guilt. And you really can become his life. If you sin sexually like I named before, then here's what that means. Jesus Christ became a sexual sinner. He became that sin. He who knew no sin became the sexual sinner so that you can become his sexual purity. He gets yours, you get his. In a real exchange, he bore your sin. He took you with him on that cross and when he died... Here's the reality your brain has got to start saying. When he died, you really died. And when he was buried in that tomb, you are watching your funeral. And when he rose from the dead, you are watching your resurrection. And when he ascended into heaven, you are literally watching your ascension. And when He was glorified by the Father, it's the reasons Romans 8 calls us past tense glorified, because you received His glory. And when He was seated at the right hand of the Father, you sat down. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's Colossians 3. You are in Him. That's what this means to be free from the guilt. He has set you free indeed. You have been pronounced innocent. Guess why? Because you are actually innocent. He was pronounced guilty. You know why? Because he was actually guilty. We all want to say, yeah, but it wasn't. Yeah, but I mean, but not really. No, really. He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could really become the righteousness of God in Christ. But that doesn't mean you feel like it, does it? And that's what gets us to the harder word, shame. Shame is insidious. It is so difficult to overcome. What is it? Well, we're going to start with the definition of shame. Shame is that feeling of filthy, unworthy. It's the feeling of being exposed, of being vulnerable. It's the feeling of being unacceptable before God and before man, even before yourself. Shame is that feeling of unworthiness that comes kind of with guilt. But the weird thing about shame is that it's not only felt whenever you've done something wrong. Ask any rape victim. They did nothing wrong, and yet they feel so filthy, so dirty, so unlovable, so unworthy. Why? They didn't do anything. They bear no guilt for that sin. So why would they feel bad? But it's not the only time it happens. I spent so many days with a woman who was racked with shame. She thought it was guilt, but she didn't do anything wrong. You know what her crime was? Her sister was molested as a little girl and she was not but she felt such shame about the fact that she wasn't harmed. There are people who escaped from the concentration camps, who were rescued out of it, and they talk about how they can't even meet the eyes of those who were left there because they feel such shame that they didn't have to go through what everybody else went through. Shame is strange. It comes at the oddest times, and then it doesn't come when it ought to come, right? Right? Shame can happen for so many reasons. There are times in the Bible where shame, like, shows up where we just kind of read past it, but we have to understand, like, why it's so weird to happen. There's a guy named Abimelech, he was such an evil ruler, like, absolutely horrible. And he's trying to attack this fortress by burning it down. And he got too close to the wall. There was a tower above it, and a woman took a large boulder stone, heaved it over the ramparts, and guess what? It crushed his skull. So as he's, I know I love her, as he's laying there dying, she's my woman, laying there dying, he says to his servant, Please kill me. I need you to kill me, because if not, it will be said that Abimelech died by the hands of a woman. We can't have that, can we? He feels shame about dying at the hands of a woman. Guess what he felt no shame for? Burning alive a thousand men and women just days before. That shame is not heavy on his heart. The shame of being killed by a woman. That's the one he can't stomach. Shame sometimes doesn't attach itself where it should be. And we're a lot like that. Can y'all feel that? Shame is meant to be also a gift to drive you towards God, but a lot of the time we don't feel it for the right things. And we don't know what to do with it. We just hate it. For example, do y'all remember when you were little and maybe you were just playing, you were just going about your day, and all of a sudden you looked up and realized somebody was laughing at you? Or maybe you were clumsy and you're crying because you're actually in pain, but somebody else is like filming you and laughing. And in that moment, maybe you're the type that just got up and walked away, and you're just like, those are idiots. I'm, I'm over this. I'm past this. Like, can't believe I have to live with them. But some of us, it goes a bit deeper. I remember one time that hit me, like, so hard, and I was doing just like every other kid did. Do you remember the time you realized sound traveled right after you had gotten out of the shower and belting out that Whitney Houston tune? Was that just me? <laughs> So there I was with my headphones on. Back then, headphones were about the size of dinner plates. So if you can picture this thing, they were about, they were about eight inches thick and about this big. And I was sitting there listening to my Yes 8 tracks. Leave it alone. Those are... Fun. So... I am belting it out, but I don't realize, because I'm about four or five, like how loud you sound until I felt one being pulled away. And I look up, and it's an uncle I dearly love. And that uncle is laughing, and this is what he said. I'll never forget it. You would never sing that loud if you knew how bad you sounded. (laughs) And he put it back, and I can see his face. I'm sitting on the floor, and I can see his face. He's walking back, and everybody's laughing. And he's walking off, and I never did. To this day, I can't sing without thinking about it. Thinking about it. I do sing, and I do sing loud, and too bad for you. But I now know I actually am not a horrible singer. I mean, nobody's asking me to take the solo. Do you know what I mean? But I'm not horrible at it. But from there on, I thought I was. I never sang out loud. I wouldn't sing out loud in the car. I wouldn't sing out loud at home. I would never sing out loud in a crowd. The fact that I do now tells you how far I've come. And that's just a tiny story. But in that moment, I became what my uncle told me I was. Before that five seconds, before that episode, here I am just belting it out, having a great time. I'm happy. I'm laughing. And then in the next moment, I have become a shameful thing. I have become a a girl who is owning the fact that she cannot sing. We laugh about it because not only have we had it happen to us, we've done it to people. We are horrible about this. Shame, here's what I need you to understand about what shame does. Shame links you to that moment. It roots your identity in those words. It grounds who you are In a moment, in an event, in words, in actions, you become literally known in yourself as what they said that you were or what God says that you should feel or even if nobody was there, but you yourself saw what you did as shameful. That's what shame does. It attaches you to a moment. Shame is about not an objective truth like Guilt, I told you. You're either guilty or not. Were you going 50? If not, you're guilty. But shame is more about an opinion. It's about how you feel, which makes it so insidious. That's why we can actually be guilty of sin and feel no shame about it. Even though like, everyone around you might be saying, "Like, <coughs> I can't believe that you did that. You're like, I'd do it again. That same Aisley was about five when she looked back and I'm telling her about a friend of hers. And I'm like, I cannot believe she talked to her mom like that. And from the back, I hear this little mumbling because she thinks, you know, she's young. She doesn't know sound travels that far. And I hear her mumble from her car seat. If I was her, I'd have done that same thing too. She's like trying to throw shame off of her friend. She's that loyal, right? So even though she knew logically, was what that daughter did to her mom wrong, she would have said, yeah, but, the quick but, yeah, but, I would have done the same thing. She's trying to alleviate, not the guilt of it, she can't take that away, but she's trying to alleviate the shame. Can you not see our entire world doing this right now? I don't care what you people say. I'm doing whatever I want. Just do it. Do what you feel. Be who you are. Live out your life. No shame here. We want shame-free zones. No shame here. Non-judgment zones. But we are confusing shame and guilt. You are guilty if you've broken the covenant that God has made with mankind and done against His character. That's it. That's guilt. Shame can be given and taken away based upon other people's opinions, on how you feel, on whether you know God or not. Shame. And we're not only shame bearers, we are shame givers. And let me just tell you that Christians, oh my goodness, are the worst at this. It's why the world hates us. We are shame givers. We don't come up to people usually, although there are some idiots out there, but we don't usually come up to non-believers and say things like, I just can't believe that you would do that. I don't know. But you know who we do it to? Each other. But we don't do it like to you. Here's how it might sound. I'm just saying, I don't think I can be friends with somebody who. I'm not saying like I'm better than them or whatever. I'm just saying like I could never. Can you believe that she? I know. I just never thought that he would. Those are shame-giving statements because somehow you're way up here and you just can't fathom being somebody who's way down here because you're so different. We are not only shame-bearers, we are shame-givers. We're horrific at this. So, how is this cycle of shame and shame-giving and guilt going to be broken? it can seem like it never will be. And I know it because this is who I was at 19. As I said, it's what brought me to Christ. I told you about some of the things done to me. They were added onto by words. I was just surrounded by people who didn't think (laughs) about the effects words can have. And I was the kind of girl who took words very seriously. So when another relative told me that, I would be with them forever because I would never find somebody who would love me. I bought in. I bought in. But instead of having it drive me to a savior, it drove me to be an overcomer. I was the type that started throwing off them. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, why would you care about what they say? They're stupid. That's me i'm the type that throws it off i convinced myself that it wasn't my problem it was them in fact let me show you something that i found when i was growing you can't really see this but this is little third grade kim (laughs) oh i know she's so cute (laughs) okay so there's little third grade kim she's got a couple of permanent teeth in right she's smiling like she's happy When I found this, I also realized this must have been the year I learned cursive because there's writing in my handwriting in big loopy, do you know what I mean, huge cursive, and on the back it says, Kim the Great. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's who you're meeting today. Congratulations. Autographs later. Kim the Great. Now, do you honestly think that it's because I thought I was all that at the age of eight? It was actually just the opposite. This is the year that I can remember in school where I became awake to shame and the opinions of others. I was struggling so hard in this little third grade year to believe that I was not worthless, to believe that I was not insignificant. I was fighting to believe that I actually was worthy of being loved, that I actually was pretty, untalented. I thought I was ugly. I thought I was stupid. And I could not believe that I happened to be surrounded by all these pretty, talented people. You ever notice that you have a horrible hair day, and not anybody else does? Like there's no one but you. And that's exactly how I felt like in the age of eight. I can remember I used to sit in my closet in the dark. There's a mirror on the back, and I would shine a flashlight, and I would talk to myself trying to talk myself into believing that they were the ones who were wrong, and I was right. I was worthy to be loved. I'm the one who started all those lists of when I grow up, when I have a little girl, because I was filled with shame, but I was determined to fight it. Some people are like that. Others of you are not like that. That's not how you deal with shame. You don't start isolating yourself and pushing others down. Some of you you kind of own it and you kind of try to try harder to be like them. You're the ones who watch everybody else. And if everybody else starts wearing their hair that way, you're wearing your hair that way. You're watching fashions. You're watching what people do. If the popular people over here, if the people who seem to be confident are basketball players, then you're working on your basketball skills. Or you're trying to find something that you can do that maybe nobody else can really do. Your place of excellence. That's all that is is shame deflection. Because we don't know what to do with it. Others of us are like me. I'm just the opposite. The clothes I wore, I'm the one of those that made sure, like, I would have gone to Austin to go shopping. Does that make sense? In the thrift stores. Found something completely different than anybody else. Since I didn't think I could match all of you, I became the one who rejected you. If you didn't like me, you were, you were just rejected. You're on the outside. People would circle into my world for a little while and then they would try and press me on something and I would push them away again. I couldn't fit in, so I didn't try. You're stupid. Why should I bother? That was what I believed. And I rebelled in more ways than clothes and words. By the time I was 11, I was drinking almost daily. It was the only way I could escape. I started reading book after book. My mom... <laughs> And a friend bought me like a subscription to romance novels when I turned 11. And I started reading one after the other, after the other, escaping into fantasy. I was an escapist at night. And then I got older and I started driving around the age of 13, (laughs) illegally. But getting me where I needed to go. Everybody was gone from my house so I could be gone. I knew my curfew was just beat mom home. That was it. So I'm drinking, I'm partying, I've got guys in my life, one after the other after the other. That's my world. I go off to college, and all I found was more money and more guys and more parties. And when God ripped my life open, I wasn't, it wasn't because like, I had gone too far. I was playing quarters with tequila at an NFL playoff game party with guys who were my new best friends because they had all the alcohol I wanted. I don't even remember any of their names, and I'm not sure I would have even known them. It didn't matter. That's who I was. And as I sat there playing quarters, all of a sudden, in a flash, no voice, no weird signs from God, the heavens did not open, all I saw in one heartbeat was I was the sum of everything I hated. Every bit of anger I had against my friends or against my father or against my mother or against my stepdad... Everything I felt, I realized I had just become it. And I was racked with shame, so much shame that I didn't want to live. And I mean that sincerely. It's just that God in His mercy didn't let any of those attempts succeed. So there I am, walking around campus now, not knowing what in the world to do with my life wracked with such shame like I have never known because I can't escape it. I really am this. This isn't anybody else's words. I know I'm guilty. I know I'm shamed. So how do you go from that woman at 19 walking around a campus filled with shame, hoping she can die, to a woman who's up here, (laughs) seemingly filled with confidence, right? Who loves to scream at you. Seems like she doesn't have a care in the world. How, do you, how does that happen? I really, really, really want you to know it. But strangely, when I tell you, here's the problem. For those of you who've heard this before, it is my absolute concern that you're about to click me off. Especially if you've been raised in the church. I'm going to give you a warning. If you have actually considered yourself being raised in the church... Hi. Though I do love a good musical soundtrack. If you've been raised in the church, let me warn you, the women who end up on my couch at 35, 45, 55 are all the people who've been raised in the church. As soon as a woman calls me and starts to talk about her past, now she doesn't quite get how you live this way and doesn't know what to do about her daughter and her marriage and all this, the first question I always ask is, just as a guess, I'm sort of just taking a survey, can I just assume you were raised in the church? And they're all like, Yeah. Why? Is that wrong? I'm like, yes, apparently it is. Apparently we suck at this. All right, so we're going to go back. So here's my heads up to you. The words I'm about to say are familiar, but they're so familiar, you've forgotten the wonder of them. The only good thing about being raised outside of the church is that these words were new to me and truth to me. I bought in. And if you're still struggling with guilt or with shame, then you're still not understanding this. So here's the two things. They're so easy. You ready? You have to believe the gospel and give the gospel. I didn't even give you like a slide for it. Can you remember that with me? You need to believe the gospel and you need to give the gospel. So receive the gospel, but specifically a part of it. To overcome guilt and shame in your life, you have to understand this term, union with Christ. The term that you would want to study for the rest of your life is called union with Christ. And what does that mean? Union with Christ is exactly the reality of the exchange I told you about earlier. And when the Bible talks about it, it talks about it in the tiny words of Scripture called prepositions. Do you remember those from those stupid English... Not stupid. Your teachers aren't stupid. time. Well, but this class is stupid. But unless you're doing Latin, y'all are weird. Um, okay, prepositions. In, with, through, because, things like that. Okay. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. It's not up here. Ephesians chapter 2. Or an app. Or whatever. There are so many places I could have taken you to. In order to point this out to you, because it's not a teaching found in one place, it's actually the way, especially Paul, describes everything with Christ. But he does it here. If you're going to study a passage on it, if you want to leave here and find more out about union with Christ, that's Romans 5 6, 7, and 8. Just write down Romans 5 6, 7, and 8. And it's going to walk you through the reality of what your union with Christ means. But I'm going to point out how it's found in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, just so you can start to see it when you read it. If you write in your Bibles, circle the, the phrases I'm going to pause on. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, while, um, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, what? With Him. With Him. He made you alive together with Christ. When Christ was risen from the grave and brought to life, you were brought to life with Him. Then keep reading. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up. How? How? With Him. He raised us up with Him. We were raised up, ascended with Him. And seated us with Him. In the heavenly places. You are seated in the heavenly places. And I know your brain so concrete still at this age. You're sitting there going, actually it's right here. I hear you. This is like one of those things that you've got to start nodding with. Instead of saying, once I understand this, I'll believe it. This is a miracle that has occurred. Who you are, the reality of you, is seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus. All of those in Christ, with Christ, in Him, with Him. If you're jotting down notes, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, Philippians 2, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, John, the high priestly prayer of John. Jesus actually prayed the very thing we just read. Father, I ask that they be one with us, even as I am one with you. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one with us. That's what he asked for. Jesus prayed that you would be in union with Christ. That's the reality of what's true of you. And freedom from shame comes in understanding that. Remember when I told you that your guilt is real. Your guilt before God is absolutely real. But so is the reality of Jesus uniting himself to your sin. He became your sin. If you are his, then he took that sin with him to the cross. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he rose, you rose. When he ascended, you ascended. When he was seated, you You were seated. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. Colossians 3 again. This really happened. It is absolutely truthful. It's for real. And it's not in your future. These are all past tense verbs. This all happened behind you when he did it. He is the son of God. So guess what you get to be? The child of God. He has the favor of God. Guess what you have? You have no shame before God. It says in Jude 24, now to him, let's see, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. And then he tells you how he feels about it. To present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. There is no shame before God anymore. The only emotion He feels about me is joy when I'm in front of Him. My shame is gone because I have the righteousness of Christ as mine. I am my beloved's. He really is mine. He took my poverty. And he gave me his kingdom. He took my rejection. He gave me his acceptance. I am free. It's the craziest part of this gospel. You are what he is because he became what you were. Say it again, listen. You are what he is because he became what you were. That's the truth he left glory. Guys, he had no shame before he came. And he came here to be born in a stable, a shameful place to be. Born to a woman who got pregnant before marriage, a shameful place to be. He was chased by soldiers in his toddler years like a criminal, shamed before the country. He was a nobody from nowhere. No one in his hometown thought he was anything. The the rulers thought he was just nuts. His own brothers couldn't care less about him. His mom, even after all the revelation of the angels, his mom stood with the brothers, his own brothers, and against him. His followers, they did nothing but betray him and leave him. He's the worst king ever from earthly terms. Why would he do that? He didn't have to, except that he did, because the one he came for was shamed. So he left glory to become the shamed one, to take the shamed ones back with him to glory. He became us. Do we feel like this is true? Not all the time. And that's because this is how it works. You have to be transformed by the the renewing of your mind, not your emotions. Your emotions are supposed to be subject to what you know to be true. But in today's world, in us, we are ruled by emotions. Emotions are supposed to be self-controlled, made subject to your mind. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to know that these things are true. So I told you that you have to believe the gospel. Why would I even mention giving the gospel? If believing the gospel contains all of that, why do we even need to mention giving it? And here's why. Because in giving it away, in telling others this good news, it firms up, teaches you, reminds you, convicts you, convinces you, gives you confidence in the words you're saying that you yourself struggle to believe. Even while I'm teaching you, this becomes more real to me. Does that make sense to you? God has called us to be this. Now you get to turn and you get to go out of this world to others who are hiding in their shame, who are trying to numb it with alcohol and drugs and sex, and yet they are emptier than they've ever been. To those who are overcomers, those who are striving and seeking, for whom grades are all in all and whose looks have to be perfect before they can leave the house and whose guys worry about how their body looks or their position on teams. They have to have these things because if they don't, they've lost the foundation of their life. And here you will come to tell them a different story. Instead of being a shame bearer and a shame giver, You will be a shame remover. The Bible says that when you do these things, you are known as a repairer of the streets, a rebuilder of the broken places. You are the renewers. You're those who offer the rebirth. And when you do, you find yourself becoming the rebuilt, the renewed, the restored, the reborn. If you struggle with shame, like you can hear me and you're like, I know this. I know this is true. I know I'm accepted in Christ Jesus, but I still feel it. I promise you, if you will go to find one who feels shame and speak to her, speak to him, the reality of who Christ will be for them, you will feel yourself leaving that conversation so confident that this is true. It's partly why impact is so amazing. We go out every day, three times a day, and we say these words, that God loves you so much and He will wipe away all of that sin. And Jesus rose from the dead and He can be your Father too. All you have to do is believe and follow Him and then you get to be His child. And then you get a little kid who comes up to you and says to you something like, Me? And you, though you would have said to me hours before, Me? Will find yourself turning to that child to say, Yes, you. God loves you. You are accepted in Him. Your sins don't change your status because He who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in Him. Speaking the gospel is a part of healing from shame. Guys, we're not meant to keep this good news to ourselves. The more bold you go to give, the more bold you will find yourself able to speak back to yourself and the shame you still feel. But you not only have to tell it, you need to understand this, you also have to show it You not only have to tell the gospel, you have to show the gospel. You not only get to tell them the true story, you have to act out the true story. Here's what I mean. You cannot offer on one hand the acceptance of God for them and withhold your fellowship from them. You cannot on one hand say, I have this good news of reconciliation with God and then turn to another and say, except for those people over there. You cannot turn to a brother and sister and tell them all about Jesus, sit next to them in school, proclaiming the gospel is yours, and then somehow look at them and say, You're not going to believe what she did. You cannot both be a shame owner, a shame reliever, and at the same time be a shame giver. Because guess which one they're going to believe? They will always believe the truth of our actions before they will ever trust our words. It took me about nine years of being married before my husband looked at me and said, you look really beautiful. And I didn't tell him to stop. It took a long time of him loving me before I believed his voice over the other voices. But during those nine years, he didn't just say, you look beautiful. He displayed that I was beautiful. He not only, I worried so much about being a mom. What kind of a mom I would be. I was so worried I would screw up my girls. And then I slowly stopped listening to those voices. How? Not just because I have such a disciplined mind but because I was filled with people who would encourage me and affirm me and teach me and and wanted to be a part of my life. You cannot go and say, I have the bread of life, while you leave them hungry. You cannot say, I have the living water which satisfies wherever you go, and somehow walk away leaving them thirsty. You have to become who he is for them to believe what you say. Worry as much about your ability to live the gospel as you do to be able to tell the hand illustration. It is of no value if your very actions tell them they are unacceptable to somehow convince them that they are acceptable to God. The people that I have in my mind right now are actually not y'all. They're like, right now, to this week, in our Austin Capitol, there was a group of Muslims who were going to be visiting. And we actually had lawmakers, and wait till this little audio gets out. We actually had lawmakers who refused to meet with them, who put Israeli like flags on them. Hear me, these were not the terrorists who were visiting. These were Texans who wanted to come show their children the process. Now, do I understand that we have Muslim radicals who would like to do away with America? Yep. It's just they're not probably the next Muslim you're going to meet. And the next Muslim you're going to meet needs to know more about your Christ than about your politics. I'm not talking about whether or not we should have formed alliances with them. I'm talking about accepting them into our presence because we have been accepted into the Holy One's presence. We do not withhold the gospel from anyone, and we take every opportunity we have to give it. So I need you to hear me. It's not just you screwing it up by talking, gossiping in the hallways. These people who did that claim to be Christians. I don't know whether they are or not. I'm not doubting it because of one action. We're all screw-ups. But I'm telling you, this is a problem you're going to have to fight for the rest of your life. To count all people worthy of the gospel because you were counted worthy of the gospel is a part of telling the right story. Don't run from shame. Don't hide it. Don't overcome it. Don't try and do away with it with good deeds. Do with it what it was meant to make you feel. Run yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when people come to you confessing their sins, own it with them that you are a sinner just like them and speak the words of truth to them so that they can find their restoration in Christ and by seeing Him become more like Him. I get that you're a great sinner, but you have got to start owning that He is a far greater Savior than you could ever be a sinner. Who you are in Him is the truth of what will remain of you. And the rest of this that's just messing it all up is dying off already. We are like trees planted by living water who will bear fruit, be a part of getting after that fruit. And when he comes along and he finds bitter fruit that needs to go off and a dead branch over here, cut it off. You will never miss it. Become in Christ who you are truly in Christ. Own it. I promise you that freedom from your shame can be found as, as well as freedom from your guilt. The guilt is paid. Freedom is yours. To walk in freedom, go back to that transaction and believe the truth you've already had. All right? Let me pray. Father, we're asking that you would make this true in us, that we would become people who are that are able to toss off the shame of our lives, not because we're worthy of it, never because we're worthy of it, but because of who we are in you. Let us never be people that deny that we're sinners, never be people who deny that we are worthy of shame, but let us also be people who own far greater the reality that you bore our shame and our guilt on that cross Crucified it together with you, buried, raised, ascended, and seated us, so in the coming ages you might display the riches of your kindness towards those of us who are in Christ. I know these kids. I know some of the sins that are plaguing them. I know some of the shame they bear. Help them to walk in the light as you are in the light, Father. Help them not to fear your light. Help them to understand the sureness they have in Jesus Christ and the love and acceptance and the worthiness they have in Him so that they can begin to throw it off and walk as those who are beloved in Christ. Do this for us. For your Son's name we pray. Amen.